today. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which which is by faith. Amen. We trust the Lord will bless his reading, the reading of his word to us for Jesus' sake. Let's bow briefly in a word of prayer. Father, we come to this time of the service, this all-important time of the preaching of the word, and we pray, Lord, that the entrance of thy word would give light. Pray that thou wilt encourage the hearts of thy people, strengthen our faith through the preaching of the word. We're thankful that the word of God, both read and preached, is a means of grace unto thy people. It's a quick and powerful word, sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we pray for those that may be here that don't know the Lord. We pray that thou wilt speak to them, open their eyes to their need of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that this time will be of benefit to the kingdom and encouragement to thy people and will lift up and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In thinking about what to speak on this morning, my mind has been to and fro uh, throughout the week, just considering different subjects and what the Lord uh, was burdening me with. And having gone to the Grand Canyon this week, you can't, you can't go there as a believer and see what the Lord did in the past there without the impression uh, of, of something drastic that took place in that area. Now, you go online, you can do searches as to how the Grand Canyon was formed, and uh, you get uh, completely different answers, and not just different answers from the saved and the unsaved, or the, the humanist geologist and the creationist. You get different answers within the realm of those who believe that God created the world, those that completely reject evolution. Within that camp, you get tremendously vast different answers as to what the Lord did in the past and the evidence of what we see in the world today that took place in the past. So I obviously come to consider the Grand Canyon, admittedly, with certain presuppositions. My presuppositions are that God created the world. I'm not going to sit here and try to argue or debate with you today that the Lord created the world. I'm going to begin considering this topic with certain presuppositions, and one of them is that the Lord created the world. Another presupposition is that I believe the Genesis account, that the Lord made all things in six literal 24-hour days. Within the Christian camp, you have differences of opinion. Some say, well, a day doesn't mean a day. A day is just an epoch of time. I read it this morning. I was going through different views. Men who would be relatively conservative with regard to the view of the gospel have that view, that they can kind of reconcile what the ungodly are saying and what the Scripture says and say, well, this is kind of what we can arrive at, that yes, the Lord created the world in six days, but they're not literal 24-hour days. He took millions of years on this day to accomplish this, where he took millions of years to accomplish that. I don't believe you have to try to throw a bone to the ungodly to prove 
uh, what the Scripture says. Six literal 24-hour periods. One of the ways that I, one of the reasons why I take that opinion has to do with the Sabbath day. The Lord commanded us to keep the Lord's day holy. It was understood to the Jew what the Lord meant when he said, keep the Sabbath day holy. It was one literal 24-hour day in the week that they weren't supposed to work. And the Lord said, because in it, in, the, in, in the, the, the resting of the Sabbath day, the Lord rested a day, and he created the world in six days, but rested the Sabbath day. Therefore, you're to keep the Sabbath day. And of all the things you can say about that commandment, you can say the reason why we keep a 24-hour period, which is the Sabbath day, is because the Lord rested from his creation. And if you tie the two together, the natural implication is that the Lord rested in a literal 24-hour period. And so I say that even among those that profess to know the Lord, there's confusion. And they write in such a way, they're educated men. Not all educated men are intelligent, right? Not all educated. You can be educated and be dumb as a rock, okay? We are living in a world today. I, I, I am part of a generation that if you did not go to college and get a degree from a university, you're viewed as being ignorant. And yet, a vast majority of people my age that got degrees are dumber than a rock. They don't even know how to do the simple things of life. Right? So education does not mean intelligence. Most of the time what it means is you have a way of jamming in information that you can retain for 24 hours until your exam's over, and then two weeks later you forget most of what went in your head anyway. It has to do more with being able to study rather than a, a demonstration of actual intelligence. But be that as it may, uh, we live in a day where even the conservative views that we ascribe to concerning the flood are attacked from those within our own camp. That's why I read 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter tells us in that chapter that there is going to be in the last days those who scoff or mock and the arena or the area in which they scoff or mock has to do with the promise of the Lord's coming. Now, when you, you go back and read it, we read, we read 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, they say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. When you read that section, it isn't just the Lord's return that they are scoffing and mocking. We believe that Christ is coming again. One of the aspects connected to the Lord's return is his judgment for, upon sin. I believe ultimately that is the area in which the scoffers mock. They say, everything's continued since the creation. And we've, we've lived the same way ever since we can look back and see historical records. And yet God never judged them for their sin. Well, then where is the promise of his coming? If, if the Lord is going to judge sin and he's never done anything in the world to demonstrate that he's done that, why should I be afraid? As the, as the, as the gospel goes forth, we preach on sin, righteousness, and judgment. The scoffers in the last days focus upon their view of history and their view of geology and they say, the Lord's never done anything to judge sin before. Why should I be afraid? That's the aspect of the Lord's... It's not that they're mocking that Christ is coming again. They don't really care if Christ comes again. 
They care if Christ comes again to judge sin. Because that means they're going to be answerable to the Lord, to the creator of the ends of the earth for their sin. So when the mockers mock and scoff at a biblical view of geology and history and what the Lord has done in the world, keep in mind the real reason why they attack that view and they want to, they want to humiliate and mock those that take a literal approach to the early chapters of Genesis is because they want to justify their lifestyle. They want to justify their sin. If they acknowledge that the Lord judged the world because of sin before, then it makes perfect sense that at some point the Lord will judge sin again. So if you can, if you can argue away something that may have happened in the past, which is a, a clear indication that God judged sin, well then I can kind of feel better about myself and the way I'm living before a holy God because he's never done it before. What makes me think he'll do it again? Peter says, no, of this they are willfully ignorant of. And if you ever consider the arguments that are surrounding geology and what the Lord has done in this world in the past, you'll understand it is a willful ignorance, which in itself is an oxymoron. If you're ignorant of something, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't be exercising your will to suppress that knowledge. You just don't know it. So the very term implies a, a battle or a war being raged against the truth that they see. If you're just in ignorance, you don't know the truth. But if you're willfully ignorant, you're exercising your will to suppress what is clearly seen. And that's the argument that Peter raises. Men want to argue against what the Lord has done in the past in order to justify their sin and live any way they want. Because if they can suppress what the Scripture says about creation and the flood and judgment for sin, then they can live any way they want. That's in essence what Peter is arguing in 2 Peter chapter 3. It brought to mind that passage that we read, that one verse in Hebrews chapter 11, and I want to focus on this passage today, because all of these things tie in to the weekend that I had, where you consider such a, such a place where, as Dr. Allison used to say, the earth is screaming at you that something happened in the past. Something cataclysmic happened in the past. He used to say, the earth is screaming that the Lord destroyed the world by a flood and he's going to do it again by fire. Nature has a voice. The the world in which we live has a voice. There are things that you can learn, even from the book of Romans, we're told that you can learn about the wisdom and Godhead of the Lord by the things that you see around. You can also learn what the Lord has done in the past. And it's so ironic how these individuals will take the clear testimony of nature. Now, there are things that we don't understand exactly how it happened. Even as as conservative scholars that want to, to look at what we see in the world around us and see how it meshes with the Scripture, there, there are gaps. We don't understand how it all happened. We weren't there. None of us were there. But there's enough in the world that would testify that something happened in the past. And the biblical account tells us the Lord destroyed the world and all the the inhabitants that were on the land, he destroyed them because of their sin. And that in itself should be a testimony to us to flee from the wrath to come. Noah, in his day, faced such a judgment in the, the first judgment on the, on the world, which was the flood. 
Our verse in verse 7, Hebrews chapter 11, tells us, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I want to just consider a few things from this passage today and trust that the Lord will bless uh, this time that we are spending today in this verse. First of all, we see from this text, Noah knew that the world was going to be destroyed. He knew it was going to be destroyed because the passage tells us by faith, Noah... Now, we're not, the next phrase doesn't deal with the demonstration of his, of his faith. It just simply tells us why he acted the way he did. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house. Noah had the privilege in his day of being the only one upon the face of the earth that was warned by God of the judgment that was going to come because of sin. He knew that the world was going to be destroyed. First thing you see under this point is God told him so. The Lord himself told him that the world was going to be destroyed. The second thing you see is that his own soul could see it. His own soul could see it in everything that was around. You go back and read the account of the flood and we're told that the, uh, that the world was wicked It was sinful. Turn with me back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis. I want you to read with me the the account of how the Lord Lord saw the world. Genesis chapter 6. And the description of the world is interesting in this verse. After saying that the sons... That, the, that men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that the, the earth began to be populated in verse 1. We read down in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In dealing with this verse, it would have been enough for us if we read, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that he was evil But it doesn't say that. It says that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. Look at all the descriptions that are given in that verse. Adjective and and adverbs adding to to the weight of the statement. It wasn't just that man was wicked. This was an unusual time in the history of man that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. Now we may live in in an evil day, in an evil age, where you see the demonstrations of that wickedness in the agendas that are trying to be accomplished in the world. But thank the Lord, we do not live in a day that's described here. We still, for instance, are given the right, and it's a protected right, by our government to be able to gather to worship, to preach on the street corner, to preach the gospel, to hand out tracts, to support missionaries. The gospel still goes forth. When you read this passage, I think you can say that we don't live, we don't live in a day that, that was like this, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. It led the Lord to repent. He had made man. And he says in verse 7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping things and the fowls of the air. This, uh, this plan that the Lord uh, arrived at, that this is what he was going to do to man, was revealed to Noah. And so, of all the things we can say, we know that Noah knew the world was going to be destroyed because God told him so. His own soul could see it. He could see it in the world that was around him. But then he knew, thirdly under this point, he knew that this destruction could take away his family because it was later revealed to him of what the Lord would do. Being in this world, uh, we can, uh, as we go forth into this world, and as we live each day, we know that we live in, a, in, a, in an evil day, we, li- we live in a wicked day. A lot of the things that were revealed to Noah, praise the Lord, we have revealed to us. Now, it was revealed a little bit differently. The Lord had to directly appear to Noah and explain to him what was done. But with just as much authority and just as much the word of the Lord, we have revealed to us the will of God, not only for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. And the Lord has told us the same way in which he destroyed the world before, because of sin, he is going to destroy it again, this time by fire. Second Peter chapter 3, uh, we were told in that passage that we read, the same world that is kept in store now that the, world, that the Lord is upholding by the word of his power is being kept in store reserved unto fire and judgment uh, because of man's sin. So the Lord revealed to Noah... No one knew that the world was going to be destroyed. We have also been given to, we have, we've, we've had given to us the revelation of the, of the will of God and the mind of God that the world in which we live is going to be destroyed. In some ways, the same way that Noah had to realize that this threat of judgment was a, was a, a realistic threat to his family and that something had to be done. Uh, you and I face Uh, a very similar uh, forecast living in this day. Now, we're not expecting the world to be destroyed by water again, but the Lord has told us that judgment is coming upon sin. This time it's going to be by fire, and it's going to be because of sin. And so no one one knew that the world was going to be destroyed. We face a very similar forecast, and you and I both know from the Scriptures that the world is going to be destroyed this time by fire. The second thing we see from our passage in Hebrews chapter 11 is that Noah did something about it. It wasn't enough for Noah just to have this knowledge, but the knowledge that the, the, the Lord was going to do this and judge the world because of sin, it resulted in Noah doing something about it. Now, normally when I preach this message, the very introduction, the first thing I say to people is, who saved Noah's household? Who saved Noah's household? Obviously, being good Reformed theologians and believing in the sovereignty of God and and the need for grace, the quickening of the Spirit, we would say that all spiritual enlightenment, enlightenment begins with the Lord. And so obviously, we would say that the Lord, in revealing this to Noah, began the process by which Noah and his family would be saved. But let's read the verse, our text, and then ask that question. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. According to the text, 
If I were to ask you the question, who saved Noah's house? You would say Noah did. The, the action that is in focus here that ultimately led to the salvation of his house was the action that Noah took to prepare the ark. And so you look at the, the life of Noah and specifically this hundred years in which the Lord told him to build this ark. He built the ark and then the flood came. That period of time, the actions of Noah are being focused on by the Spirit of God. Ultimately, I believe that, that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. If you want to ask me about that, some people, some people get caught up on this thing. They, they, they feel like they can't say that Paul wrote Hebrews, so they, they say the author of Hebrews. Just, I'll, just, I'll just mention it to you. Just, the passage we've read in 2 Peter chapter 3, it clearly states Paul wrote Hebrews. You say, what are you talking about? It said 2 Peter. Peter wrote two books, First and 2 Peter. Both books were written to Jews, okay? That the strangers scattered. So he's writing to the Jews. In 2 Peter 3, you may have remembered the verse we read. Peter says, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, in which are some things hard to be understood, which those that are unlearned and unstable twist, as they do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Three things you can say about that verse. First of all, Paul wrote to the Jews. He wrote a book to the Jews, specifically to the Jews. Second thing, it took the form of an epistle, because Peter is saying that it was like his epistle. The third thing is that epistle was viewed by God's people as scripture, because Peter went on to say, these ungodly men twist it as they do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So we know that part of the inspired word of God contains a book that Paul wrote to the Jews that's scripture. Some, sometimes, remember I said you can become so intelligent that you come full circle back to being a moron? Some of these educated men, I'm convinced, they write books just to write a book. And they, they start putting out all these theories about who wrote Hebrews, who wrote Hebrews. Paul wrote Hebrews. Unless, unless you can show me another book that fits that criteria. Hebrews is written to the Jews, and it's considered scripture. Peter says, Paul already wrote that to you. So, and there's other things. The style, at the end of Hebrews, the, the, the passage, the, at the very end, Paul says, know that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, right? So the one who wrote it had a relationship with Timothy. You can become so educated that sometimes you miss the obvious. You can't see the forest for the trees. Paul wrote Hebrews. So if I... If I say Paul, you understand I'm, I'm, I'm actually stating that, stating that upon pretty solid scriptural evidence. So Paul wrote Hebrews. So Paul in this passage is going through, who, would, who else would have had a better understanding of all these Old Testament characters than the Apostle Paul, who was, edu- who was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He's going person after person, saint after saint, and he left a bunch out. At the end of the section, he says, and what, time would fail me to talk about all these others, right? I mean, there's so many others that their faith was in Christ. They walked by faith, right? So Paul here is, is emphasizing, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that Noah, being warned of God, which is grace, he acted upon that. And you can actually make the statement, now I understand it was all part of God's economy, but you can say if Noah did not build the ark, his family would not have been saved. So Paul focuses upon that. And here in this verse, says that his actions led to the salvation of his family. So take that in the, in the broad context of the flood. 
The Lord was going to destroy the world. We saw that first. He revealed it to Noah. Noah did something about it. It says here three things. He was moved by fear. He was afraid, and rightly so. The Lord said he's going to destroy the world. That would put the fear of God in me. It would lead me to do whatever the Lord wanted me to do, because the only way I'm going to be saved is if I do what God says. The same one that's bringing the judgment is also bringing the salvation. So he revealed this to Noah. And under this point, I want to focus upon his actions. We like to only emphasize that salvation is of the Lord. And to, to the neglect, oftentimes, of the responsibilities that we have as believers to act. You listen to some reformed men and you think that we're some kind of uh, robots programmed by God that, that we act only by you know, what, we, what we read in the scriptures. There's no accepting of responsibility. It was all part of the economy of the Lord. The Lord was going to deliver Noah and his house. But he was going to do it because Noah moved with fear, built the ark. So you can't emphasize, in this passage, you cannot emphasize the grace of God in revealing the truth to Noah without mentioning that it took labor on the part of Noah to see his family saved. And that's what Paul's emphasizing here. Noah was moved with fear. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house. The fear of God. We, we, we go through different periods of time in church history where generations more or less reflect the, the move of God in that generation by the clear demonstration of the fear of God. It's one of those things that in our generation is being lost. You see it in how worship services are handled. I'm not saying that you have to run your worship service exactly how we run it. But I would say that a worship service needs to be run in such a way that cultivates the fear of the Lord. Not terror, but the respect, the reverence that we give to the creator of the ends of the earth who has loved us and given his son for us. Right? The respect and the honor, the fear of God. Now, in this case, Noah was afraid. He did have legitimate fear. But the fact that he built that ark and he did exactly what God told him to do indicates to us the reverence. The weight of the word of God was heavy. He took, it, he took, he took the Lord's word seriously. So there was the fear of God. You can say that he had fear of God, but he had the fear of losing his family. The Lord said the only way your family is going to be saved is if you come into the ark. So the first thing is he moved by fear. Second is he prepared a shelter. He prepared a shelter, a place into which his family could be saved. It was hard labor. Any of you that know uh, construction, it's, it's hard labor. You can usually tell by shaking someone's hand if they do manual labor. If they're a carpenter. You ever shake a carpenter hand? I remember growing up, my, my uncle had seven kids, five boys, and his... his uh, his business was home remodeling. Every one of those boys, my cousins, when I would see them and shake their hand, felt like I was shaking shoe leather, right? Their, their, their hands were just tough as could be, the calluses. Uh, the, the hands indicated the, the labor. And when you're in construction like that, it, it affects, it, 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 you show in your physical appearance and in, in the way people would shake your hand, you could see that it's hard labor. So, the, 
the preparing of the shelter was hard. It was hard labor. It cost much time. It cost him 100 years of his life. Now, we were also told that he was a preacher of righteousness. So he was doing other things besides building. But over the 100 years, he built the ark. So it was hard labor. It cost much time. And he endured much mockery because he was a preacher of the gospel. We're told that in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, that he, he was a preacher of righteousness. Uh, and then the third thing. So he's moved by fear. He prepared a shelter. And he did all this despite the promise he had received from God. What did you say, what do you mean? Wasn't it because of the promise? Well, I'm taking it from a little bit different perspective that his actions and his labor, his hard labor, was in spite of the promise. Well, what do I mean? Well, the fact that he feared God and he had received grace in the eyes of the Lord, the promise could have been, in, in Noah's mind, he could have said, well, the Lord, the Lord said he's going to do it and he's going to bring me into the ark. I'm safe because God said it and he's sovereign, so it's going to be accomplished. No, it had, the, it, had, it had the exact opposite effect. The promise that he gave to Noah, that the Lord gave to Noah, led him to build the ark, and him building the ark was in spite of the promise. It wasn't just that he said, well, God promised it, and that's it, and I'm just going to kind of coast in, and, and the Lord's going to save my family. There, was a, there, was a, there were means to the end. The means to the end required hard labor. Required hard labor. So under the first point, we considered that God revealed this to Noah. He knew that judgment was coming. And we made application in our day today. We have the scriptures. And we're told about another judgment that's coming. In the same way that Noah did something about it, the Lord expects the same exact thing from us as his people. What do I mean? He expects us to be moved by fear. The the prospect of coming judgment in the return of Christ. You can go to the, to the major passages of Scripture that deal with the Lord's return. And here, in 2 Peter chapter 3, the passage that we read, is the emphasis upon the judgment for sin. You can go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, where we're often, it's often said to be the rapture. Uh, the Lord shall descend from heaven with the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. There's no mention there of fire and judgment. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What's emphasized there when the Lord returns? The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The Lord's return in that passage, the emphasis is upon the corruptible putting on incorruption, the new body, the great resurrection. Right? So, so in, these, in these major second coming passages in the New Testament, different aspects of the Lord's return are focused upon. That's, if, if you actually study those passages and put them together, I believe, and I'm kind of revealing my view of eschatology here, but I believe all three of those events happen at the same time. If you believe in a millennium, you'll wedge a thousand years in there somewhere. I don't believe in a literal 1,000-year millennium. I'm amillennial. I believe that the great events that are mentioned in the epistles all take place at the same time. And I believe there's, there's enough evidence in those epistles. The same terms are used in those epistles that, that interlock all three. It's hard for me to separate the way in which those words are used. The, the, the linking passage that links the other two together is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because in that section, you, 
you, you read that the, the Lord shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And then the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says, uh, that day doesn't overtake us. He comes as a thief in the night, but that doesn't overtake us as a thief, right? So you have the trumpet, and you have the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. That's important. You don't overlook that because those terms, the Lord doesn't just throw those terms out there as interesting analogies or ways, metaphors in which to describe his return. Because one of those passages talks about the trumpet sounding in 1 Corinthians 15, while it's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4. So in my mind, it's talking about the same event. One talks about death being swallowed up in victory, right? The great resurrection passage. And it links it to 1 Thessalonians 4. The other term that's used in 1 Thessalonians 5, which is the same context, Paul says, talks about the, the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. Well, that's the phrase that we just read in 2 Peter chapter 3. The day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night in which the heavens will be burned up and men will be judged for their sin. So the terms that are used in 1 Thessalonians 4 are very important because in my opinion, they link the other two passages, which tells us what? The, the believers will be caught up together with the, with the Lord in the clouds. Death is swallowed up in victory, and he judges sin. These are all the great events that are, are surrounding the Lord's return. I happen to believe that, that it all takes place at the same time. You can have a different view. You're, you're allowed to be wrong in our denomination. You can have a different view. But um, I actually was convinced of this view by Dr. Allison. Uh, it's a great way of... But what his argument was, so every other doctrine we hold to regarding the person and work of Christ, where do we go to first? We go to the epistles and we go to the gospels. That's where the Lord, by the Spirit of God, has, has chosen to make doctrine clear, right? You don't go to the unclear passages to form your doctrine. We don't go to the Old Testament to form our doctrine on the atonement. Where do we go? We go to Romans. We go to the epistles. Why? Because the Spirit of God filled Paul to speak in clear terms. That's where we go to form our doctrine. We can go to the other passages to support the doctrine, but you don't go to the unclear passages to form your doctrine. Why should it be any different in regard to the Lord's return? And that's when he dealt with the three major sections in the epistles that deal with the Lord's return and showed that they all happened at the same time. So I thought it was very sound, uh, a very sound way of approaching biblical interpretation. And so I, I said, that's my view and I'm sticking with it. So uh, I believe that all three of these, these events are happening at the same time. But the, the, the fear... Moved with fear, he prepared a shelter. What's the shelter? Well, obviously, one of the greatest pictures of the work of Christ is Noah's Ark. The only way, the only way Noah's family could be saved is if they were in the ark. And the Lord sealed the ark. The Lord gave the revelation, you need to come into the ark. It's the only way that, that you and the seven, the eight souls, are going to be saved as if you come into the ark. Oh, read through the, the book of Acts. Who's the ark? It's Christ. Peter says, neither is there salvation in any other, neither, uh, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the same exact imagery. Saved from what? Saved from destruction. Noah, how is your family saved? The only way is through the ark. Peter says, Christ is the ark, in essence. 
There's not salvation in any other. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to come through the judgment on the other side other than through the work of Christ. That's why I say that, that, that Noah's Ark is one of the greatest pictures of Christ and being secure and safe in Christ. So he prepared a shelter. How do we prepare a shelter in our day when we understand that judgment is coming upon us for sin? Our children, we understand that the only way they can be saved from the wrath to come is to bring them into the ark. Not the physical ark. To bring them, to bring them into Christ. To make sure that we're constantly putting the gospel before them. To pray for their souls. Pray that the Lord will put the fear of God upon them. In my, in my, my boys, in, in their presence, every night when we pray, I pray that the Lord will give, put the fear of God in their hearts. And that will also reveal himself to them. What am I referring to? Well, the, the, the passage of, of Jacob. Remember Jacob had, had to leave. He had to leave his family and, and he was fleeing his brother because he was upset that he took his birthright. He was going to kill him. In his fleeing, he, he, he came to a place now known as Bethel. At the time, it wasn't known as Bethel. He laid down for the night and used a stone for his pillow. He had a dream. He dreamed that he saw a ladder whose, whose top reached to heaven and the bottom was reaching, touching on, on earth. And the angels of God were ascending and descending upon the ladder. And it's there that the Lord revealed to Jacob his covenant. It says Jacob woke up. It says he was afraid. He was afraid. He said, surely God is in this place. And my own view of Jacob's life is I, I don't believe he actually was saved until Peniel. A lot of people believe he was saved at Bethel. I believe the Lord was showing to Jacob his need for salvation because Christ himself refers to that ladder and says he's the ladder, the son of man. I, I believe at Peniel he wrestled with God. His walk was changed from that point on. The rest of his life he halted upon his thigh and the Lord gave him a new name. Right? So I believe that, that, that that's when the Lord saved him. But be that as it may, he, he may have saved him here. The point I want you to see is when Jacob first met with the Lord, it says he was afraid. He was afraid. And he said, surely God is in this place. My hope for my children is that the Lord moves in such a way that they wake up, as it were, and are afraid. And they know the presence of God. And that they know that the, the, the promise that the Lord has given, and the word that he has given, not just concerning salvation, but fleeing from the wrath to come, will cause them to be afraid. That's what I want. I want the fear of God to, to grip their hearts the same way it gripped the heart of Noah. But here we're told he prepared a shelter. You and I also, in this generation in which we live, must have the fear of God. We must have such a reverence and an understanding of the word of God that we know beyond the shadow of any doubt that the Lord's going to judge sin. He's going to judge sin. How do we know? Because, two things, we see it in the world. The world screams at us that he did it before. But we're told in the word of God. The same way Noah was told, judgment's coming. We have a, we have a double barrel argument. Noah only had the word of God. We have the word of God plus what we see in nature. Go to the Grand Canyon. Something happened here. This wasn't just a rainstorm that produced this. And, and you go to the petrified forest, where they even tell you right there, this whole area was underwater. It's the only way that the, the minerals could have been forced into the wood to, to petrify them. 
Or you, you consider these woolly mammoths that they're finding up in the Arctic where they dig them out and they say, well, there's, there's still green vegetation in their stomach. The only way this could have happened is if something happened and froze them instantly. These, these, these cataclysmic events that took place on the earth, the, the nature, nature screaming to us that God did it before with a flood and he's going to do it again by fire. What should that produce in us? It should produce in us the fear of God that moves us to prepare a shelter for our children. We talk today about parents. One of the arguments that is raised against us is that we're sheltering our kids, right? Oh, you don't let them do this. You don't let them do that. You're just sheltering them. You better believe I'm sheltering them. What else am I going to do? Throw them to the world? You think I care? You think I care whether they think I'm sheltering my kids? You think Noah cared? What? Ah, just let him do whatever. Yeah, we still got 95 years, right? No. He was moved with fear, and he labored. Labored. You could see it. He had the evidence on his hands. He had the evidence in, in, in his preaching. The word of God affected him, and it affected him to the point that he began to build the shelter. There's nothing more important for us as parents in our day There's nothing more important that we can be doing than preparing the shelter. Let our children know there's a shelter from the coming judgment. Let them know it's coming. Oh, they can see it. They know when they've sinned. They 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 get guilty. I look. I've got kids. When I tell my kids when I discipline them for their for their for their actions, they know. They know. They come back later. Sorry, you know, broken, heartbroken. At the time, they're kind of you know flipping out, but. Later, they come back and they say, sorry, Dad. Why? Because they know. They know they sinned. They know that they broke the law. And the evidence of that was we had a little rough going there for a minute or two. But they understand they break the law. They understand there's judgment for sin. Let them know. Let them know. The the end result for sin does not have to be experienced by by our children. The, the, The judgment of God for sin when Christ returns. There's a shelter There's a shelter. Let's build the shelter. Let's build it. Bring our kids to Christ. Constantly emphasize the work of Christ as being the the ark by which they can come through on the other side through the judgment of God. We need to be building the ark in our day. So he was moved by fear. He prepared a shelter. And then he did all this despite the promise that he received from God. There's some people that say that they're reformed. They say that they're reformed in their doctrine and it does not lead to action. They just say, well, God's going to do it. If God's going to do it, he's going to do it. Okay, I'm dealing with this. There's an ongoing thing right now with some people in Greenville that that's pretty much their argument regarding their children. Well, I can't, I can't play the part of God. The Lord has to convict them, so I'll just show them love. I'll just show them love. I won't bring up the sin. I won't bring up their lifestyle. I won't plead with them to flee from the wrath to come. I'll just show them love. If, if Noah only showed love, you and I wouldn't be here today because all mankind would have been wiped out, right? When Christ, when Christ who's the greatest demonstration of showing love, there, there's no one else that walked the face of the earth that loved the Lord his God with all his heart and loved his neighbor as himself than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came to the well in Samaria, did he only show love to the woman at the well? How did the whole conversation start? Now go get your husband. Ah, I don't got a husband. Ah, you said, well, you don't have a husband because he kind of had five husbands. 
And the one you're with now isn't your husband. She says, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Good perception. Good perception. He's a prophet. But what did he do? The first thing he did in showing love was he put his finger on her sin. You have to deal with sin if you're going to show love to sinners. They are not going to see their need for the shelter if they don't see first that they are under God's wrath for sin. And he did all that, Noah did, in spite of the promise. Oh, what a, what a great opportunity you have. Once you show your children that they're under sin, what a, what a, there's no better, no better opportunity you have than to bring in Christ. The ark, you don't have to be resolved to judgment. The Lord has provided the means whereby his banished be not expelled from him. Oh, it's the gospel. So Noah did something about it. We also have the responsibility to do something about it. To be bringing our children to Christ. The last thing, the obvious thing that we know from the story is that Noah saved his family from sure destruction. First thing you see from the account is his family was safe during the overthrow. It says in our verse, he's moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. That's why I say the passage tells us Noah saved his house. Because through his actions, through his labor, his family was saved. Now, it was all part of the plan of God. And so you can say from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. He revealed the need to be saved. He revealed the means to be saved. And because of that, Noah and his family were saved. So, obviously, salvation is by grace, through faith alone. It's the same gospel. But here, the, the, the emphasis is upon the actions of Noah. So you can say Noah saved his family from destruction. There's no greater, there is no greater testimony that I want to have in this world than at the end of the day, it can be said of me that I saved my family from destruction. That, I don't care what else happens in this world as far as personal accomplishments or desires or ambitions in life. I don't care how much money I have when the Lord calls my name. What good is it? My uncle just died. Okay? He spent his whole life. He wouldn't spend two cents. He, he had one son. And he didn't do anything for the kid. I say the kid, he's like five years older than I am. But had one son. And, and he kept making, he worked for Merck, the uh, pharmaceutical company. Just kept stacking away his money, storing away his money, lived in this little house, drove, drove normal cars. You, you never would have known how much money the guy was worth. And he just passed away from COVID last year. It's worth millions of dollars. And now what? It all goes to his son anyway, right? But here's a guy who spends his whole life, and he's successful. He's got all this money. What good did it do him? You gotta be wise. You gotta, you have to walk through this world observing things, right? You have to walk through the world with your eyes open. And regardless of what you hear, that somehow that is what you're supposed to be striving for, you gotta have enough wisdom between your ears to say, obviously, that is not what I'm supposed to be striving for. Because here's a perfect example of that. And the man died hopeless without Christ. And what good is it? Because the very thing he refused to do during his life, it ended up going to his son anyway. The vanity of it all. Right? The vanity of it all. So what is it that I want said of me? What, what do I want to, to go into eternity 
in my mind, what do I want to, to think that I accomplished? First and foremost, I want to be able to say like Noah that my family was safe during the overthrow. I want to be able to pass into eternity knowing that my children are in the ark. That's, that's number one. And really, when you understand the context, especially with Noah, right? The world's coming to an end. Nothing else really matters. What else matters as a father? Remember, the words coming to, to Noah, his actions are affecting his family. Now, Noah had to deal directly with the Lord personally, but the context here is his family. The only thing that mattered to Noah was that his family would be in that ark. That's it. Maybe that's kind of where we need to get back to in this carnal age in which we live, where we strive for so many different things. Number one, my family's safe in Christ. That's it. Should be all that matters. Nothing else matters. It's all passing away. It's all fleeting. The second thing is his family had everything they needed within the ark. So he saved his family from sure destruction. Everything they needed was in that ark. They didn't need anything else outside that ark. When the Lord sealed them in, everything they needed to, to, to pass up through safely on the other side was in that ark. Everything that the world needed to continue was in that ark. Nothing else mattered. Nothing else was needed. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's everything. That, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Everything we need is found in the Lord, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. And in this passage, we're told, everything Noah's family needed was in the ark. Everything your kids need, everything that your, your posterity needs is found in Christ. Needs. There's other things that they're going to have to do just to live. I understand that. We've got to work. We've got to be in the world. We're not of the world. I understand all that. But priority number one, everything that your children need in order to pass through the judgment of the, of the Lord and, and, and pop up on the other side, as it were, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The preaching of Christ, the explanation of the gospel to our children is priority number one. That's it. You're thinking about moving? You're thinking about going to another part of the world? For whatever reason, priority number one should be, will it be in in an environment where I can be be encouraged that my children are understanding more about Christ? Because if that's not the case, don't go. There's nothing nothing that that move should, should offer you. If it doesn't first offer you a better opportunity to put your children under the gospel. You're building the ark. You're building the ark. His family had everything they needed within the ark. And then the great, the great ending to this is that his family came up on the other side of judgment. Genesis 6, 17 and 18. And, I behold, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. What a contrast. Let's not forget that the Lord is the one that put the contrast between us and the ungodly. The, 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 the initial verse, verse 17, is a dire verse. But then there's a transition. What a, what a transition. But with thee will I establish my covenant. 
Praise the Lord that regardless of how wicked the society gets in which we live, we can always say, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. There's always the, the contrast of what the ungodly anticipate or what they experience and what the godly <clears throat> anticipate. Now, all of it, like I said, we, we know it's, it's because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But here is the, here is the, the driving home, the experience. The Lord says, yes, it's by grace that I'm revealing this to you, but I'm going to explain to you what you're going to enjoy. Your, your end is not the end of everyone else that lives in, in, in the world. This is not your end. With you, I am going to establish my covenant. The same word comes to us today. Yes, the Lord says in 2 Peter 3, he's going to destroy the world by fire. The, the, the ungodly mock it. They're willfully ignorant. The, 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 the rocks are screaming at them. The something happened. And, and all their proof leads them to the, to the conclusion, although the ultimate understanding of that conclusion is twisted, they even draw the conclusion that the war was underwater. It's, how is it possible that they can acknowledge that and yet not say it was the flood? Because they're ungodly. Their hearts are they're corrupt. They're dead in sin. And they can have that much knowledge from nature. They can have that much understanding and still miss it. And still miss it. So they say, where's the promise of his coming? Ah, uh, the Lord says, look, I've given them enough to know. They're willfully ignorant. But the promise that's given in 2 Peter chapter 3 is ultimately what we hold on to. That the Lord's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. It's the same language, right? What, was, what did the Lord do? He created a new earth when Noah came through. The Lord says, if, 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 if our trust is in Christ and we believe the gospel, it's going to do the same exact thing. He's going to bring us through the judgment and he's going to bring us through onto the new earth. We're going to experience something very similar to what Noah experienced. We're going to come up on the other side of the judgment and we're going to rejoice that the Lord brought us through the judgment onto the new earth. These are great promises that we have. It's why the picture of Noah's flood, it pictures more than just the gospel. It actually is applied directly to the attack that's brought against the judgment of God for sin. It deals directly with the gospel in that regard. And we can look at the things that we see in the world, see what the scripture teaches, and have a double-barreled argument that the same way that the Lord brought Noah through the judgment, we can have confidence that the Lord's going to bring us and our families through his wrath up onto the other side of the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so I trust that the Lord will take these thoughts about the salvation of Noah's house, and will encourage us uh, to never tire of putting the gospel before our families. It's the ark. Christ is the ark. I trust the Lord will write this word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we've had to be able to, to consider the passage of Scripture that reminds us that that the world was once judged by water. And it's a reminder to us that there is coming a judgment by fire 
the ungodly will be judged, the mockers will be judged, they'll be overthrown. But for those that are in the ark, for those that are in Christ, there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Lord, help us to prioritize our our lives, help us to prioritize how we view our families. We pray that Christ will receive the emphasis and the honor and the glory because he has done all things well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.